concerned with a whole bunch of people in Corinth, and he wrote three letters, of which we have two. And so chapter breaks are what we would call artificial. Um, and so we are in chapter three of 1 Corinthians, and you'll discover that the conversation that happened in chapter one and two is sustained partially. But we'll get a chance to work that through. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's an optic passage, a big picture pa- passage that we call an archetype that I want you to look at in verse 15 and 16. Um, actually, verse 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 3, which is the title of our, our study this week and next week. 1 Corinthians 3, order out of chaos is what we're dealing with, how that God brings order out of Chaos. These are tensions in our world that uh, that grant opportunity for God to be God and for us to discover him in his mercy and his organizing principles, which brings us up out of the chaos into his order. And Paul now, after three chapters, wants to engage us in a big picture object. This is a centerpiece, and it's actually the centerpiece of Scripture, and as soon as we contemplate it, you'll know it. Um, It actually begins in Genesis and ends at the end of the apocalypse. So the discussion is around the centerpiece, which, according to our text, is the temple. That's what he's going to be talking about, and temple theology is the centerpiece of God's glory and its relationship to humanity. We'll unpack that a little bit more. Look at verse 16 and then verse 17. Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You can notice how that the apostle now in this kind of conclusio and uh, crescendo of an emphasis is now giving us this big picture and then giving a major warning. He's talking to two categories of people. He's talking to his own people that love him and adore him and receive his teaching. But he's also talking to the adversaries of God that he has already laid out in his argument in chapter one and two. In verse 16 and 17, he actually reminds everybody this is about God's temple. And it's about God's grand scheme in the totality of the universe and time. And then he says something remarkably, remarkably intimate. He says, you are the temple of the living God and the spirit of God dwells in you. That's the, that's the big identity marker in verse 16. He wants the Corinthians to recover their identity, recover their identity. We'll unpack that a little bit more. And then he renders in verse 17 a warning. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. This is called a quid pro what? Quo. This here is a reap what you sow. Right. This here is a clear, consequential principle. Verse 16 says you are the temple of the living God. Verse 17 says anyone that defiles the temple, him God will 
destroyed. Very serious warning he's laying out here. And it won't end either in 1 Corinthians. It'll move over into 2 Corinthians as well. And it works its way all through scripture as we're going to see. So today we want to give our attention to the meaning, the significance, the relevance of a temple paradigm, a, a temple model. I've done that with you over the last year because you can't really get away from what is called the presence of God. The permanent presence of God is a temple paradigm. You can't really get away from it. It is the hope of humanity and certainly the hope of the people of God. So I want you to be thinking in terms of the temple for the next several messages or studies in 1 Corinthians 3. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness as we enter into your word. We're asking that you help us to see the truth as it is in Jesus and help us to understand this language that the apostle is setting forth and the controversy that that uh, propelled these words and help us to identify where we stand, whether or not we are temple builders or temple destroyers and help us to know where we should be and how we can affirm what we are called to be in Jesus. We're coming to you on the grounds of his shed blood. Again, that which purges and washes and sanctifies and actually strengthens us. And then we come to you on the grounds of his righteousness, that which is our standing, immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable, eternally, us in Christ, in Christ in us. And we in you, Father, and you in us, your people, open our eyes that we might behold the wonders out of your law. Help us to um, make the proper application so that we can affirm our sonship as children of the living God. We're asking your blessings upon the whole body of Christ, your blessings upon the people of God everywhere in the world that call upon your name. Your blessings upon your struggling saints, your toiling saints, those that love you, love them back. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So you can actually start with your outline. You see it at the top, uh, Corinthians chapter three, order out of chaos, the temple of God. The work that God does in this broken world is gonna be always one of him reaching down and fixing the confusion, him reaching down and correcting the error and falsehood. That is Genesis chapter one, verse one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and there was chaos. The earth was without form and void. That's called chaos, tohu and bohu. That's the way the Genesis narrative opens up and uh, there was darkness upon the face of the deep. The whole, whole universe was a mass of H2O. The whole universe was, and we know that as much as science can affirm that. It's a mass of H2O. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now we see the third person who is always the resident landlord. I've taught you that, right? Jesus is the mediator. The Father is the remote, objective principle that governs everything and the Holy Spirit is the resident landlord. He's the one that's hanging out with you, fixing the chaos. And in our context, we are looking at the chaos being dealt with, with divisions and schisms and arguments and folks going into kind of party uh, deconstructionism in the church. This is the way our text will open up. In fact, in your outline, we're going to be dealing with four things. We'll probably only get through two today. But the first major point will be they were corrupted by their what? By their politics. If you follow your outline, this is the way Paul is going to continue dealing with chapter one, chapter two and chapter three, which I told you earlier. There are really no chapters. When you write a letter, you don't write a letter in chapter form. You write a letter with sentences and then paragraphs, 
Right. So it would easily follow that if we remove chapter three as part of the text, we could go back to chapter two and, and, and uh, precede it. It's called the antecedent and look at verses 16 and 17 of the previous text and you'll see a flow going through. But for the sake of structure, they were corrupted by their politics. Number two. Their collaboration, this is, this is not the same day, this will be the apostles, their collaboration was a sign of unity. So now if you really look at verse, point number one and point number two, you see in point number one, chaos. You see in point number two, order. Can you guys see that? So we're plopping on top of our major points, a paradigm of chaos and order. So Chaos is there. Order is going to take place. And a lot of times the way that God deals with any of us, you, me or anyone, is he will allow us to experience and feel and sense chaos. And then he will also allow us to see order that delineates between where we are and where we should be. And it gives us hope because we have like a paradigm or a model of a way out of our chaos. Because when you are steeped in your chaos, you can't get yourself out. And chaos in our context is the disintegration of the unity and harmony of the people of God into categories of a party spirit. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of this person. I am that person. Now we are fragmenting. And Paul had warned us about that in chapter one. Is Jesus divided? Remember that? Did I die for your sins? Did did Paul baptize you in his own name? And those rhetorical questions are good because the way folks act often in the community of the religious is if they are engaged in party spirits. I am Baptist. I am Pentecostal. I am this. I am Lutheran. I am Methodist. I am Catholic. I am Greek Orthodox. All of those kinds of categorizations are indications of the party spirit. Okay, and so that is what we call chaos, because that's what the enemy does. James chapter three tells us his work is to bring chaos and confusion. And wherever chaos and confusion is, God is backed up and allowed human beings to smell their own poop. That's wherever chaos is, because for first Corinthians 14, when we get there and deal with the gifts of the spirit, he says in verse 33, God is not the author of confusion. So wherever confusion is, God has not produced that. He's allowed that to occur, but he hasn't produced that. See? And so this is the way the apostle is going to be working through. For God is not the author. Great. Good job up there, too, keeping up, because we need to be able to set our eyes on the text when I quote them. I do want to open up by saying this is really important to capture. I don't care where you are in the world. When you understand the centerpiece of all God's work is the what? temple, then what we have here is what is called an archetype. This here is a big type. We have smaller types. We have prototypes. We have antitypes. But an archetype is that thing that will show up again and again in the scriptures like they do in the world. In our world, we have temples everywhere because innately mankind knows he needs an intimate communication with the divine. Innately, he knows he needs to be in contact with something that actually has a source to the order in our world. When you begin to understand temple significance, you understand that temple significance is about communion. People go to temple to commune with God. That's 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 an ancillary to temple. People go to temple to hear from God, to sense his presence, to confess their sins 
to engage in what is called sacerdotal worship. This here is a kind of communal participation with God. When when the priests go to the temple, they go to the word is worship. God. Humanity knows intrinsically that there's more to humanity than itself. There's more to me than me. The universe was not created by me and it was not created for me. And so we're always reaching for something grander than ourselves because we discover that ourselves are not sufficient to navigate ourselves through this life. This is where people need to stop BSing themselves because they'll try to govern their own life, but it continues to mess up more and more and more. And God allows you to drift out into the chaos until you are humble enough to cry out to him. And then he will lead you to the temple. The temple is a paradigm that starts in Genesis. And, and, and I've told you this before. It constitutes two types of material. I'm going to show you this because I want you to get the fabric of it again, because that's what's going on in my world and the world that I'm in, which is your world, even though we may see it slightly different. The world that I am in, the the pseudo controllers of this world are seeking to tear down God's temple. Right. And if you look at verse 16 and 17, again, the Apostle Paul made an, a very profound observation around this when he said, you are the temple of the living God. And the spirit of God dwells in you, which means your body becomes the dwelling place of the presence and permanency of God. And if that which is anti-God is working against God, that means it's working against you, too. And it's working against you at the body level. Well, I've been teaching for years. They want your body because that is the central source of communion, the heart of man. And so when Paul sees the behavior of these Corinthians succumbing to all of these party spirits, then he knows that God has backed off of the community and let the community return to a measure of chaos. And he's going to share with us how he is not part of the chaos and how we should not be part of the chaos either. But it's important for you to know, I'm going to just quote a few verses. This one here will be Genesis 2, starting at verse 7. I'm going to give you optic and then we're going to go into our text. Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed who? Man. Are you guys looking up? And the Lord God formed man. That is Ish. Ish. Ish has in him also Isha. Ish is man. Isha is woman. Isha is inside of Ish. You know that from chapter 1, 26 and 27. Isha will emerge in a few verses, will she not? And Isha will join with Ish as the primary Imago Dei in the world to spread his image throughout the world by seed bearing. Agreed? So I want you to look at this man and understand that this man possesses the woman that's going to help him do what is needed to be done because it's been prophetically set for that it is the man and the woman that actually models for us in our world who God is and his redemptive mercies that will emerge. But notice the Lord God formed him out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils, the ruah, our breath of life, and man became a living soul. Verse eight, I want to walk through because I could say a lot here. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he did what? Put the man whom he had formed. So now you got the artificer. You got God. You got man who was created. And now man is being placed into his purpose. 
So this is what we're learning in our marriage series. Marriage is not about you and me. It's about a purpose bigger than ourselves. So when God makes us, he puts us into his purpose. So man was made for God's purpose, not for his own purpose. And and certainly God was not made or God did not exist for man's purpose. So here's really an interesting thing that's going to unfurl. Your happiness and mine is rooted in our purpose, not in ourselves. Like Adam is not conscious at all of himself. He's the furthest away from narcissism he could be. Remember Narcissus, the false god that looks over into the water and says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most beautiful of all, right? Narcissism is what dominates my culture right now. Our world is full of narcissists. Adam doesn't even know that he's naked because he's not operating out of shame yet. He's not operating out of a self-reflective indexing and uh, observing his inadequacy. All of us struggle with it. So God puts him in the midst of his purpose and Adam is preoccupied with God's purpose so that he won't be preoccupied with himself. Notice what it goes on to say. Verse nine. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, notice what God did. He put Adam into his purpose, which is a garden. He began to describe for us the garden. This motif runs all the way through the Bible, does it not? It runs all the way through the Bible. So God is the God of the organic Remember, Adam is made out of the same ground that the trees grow up out of. God is the God of the organic and he puts organic man into God's organic paradisial environment with all of the abundance that's already there. It's already there. Look at the next verse. Verse 10. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from this, it was parted and it became four heads. This is called the principle of universality in terms of fours, like the earth is viewed as four quarters of the earth, the four quarters of the earth. So the river flows out of the paradiso into the world through four rivers. So the world is depicted by water and it is, and it's depicted by trees and it is. Now, God's not making mention because he already talked about it in chapter one. The animals are already created. But the emphasis for Adam is to till and keep the garden and the domain or the scope of that garden is limitless. He doesn't put any boundaries on it. In other words, the way the Genesis narrative is unpacking is that you and I, who are part of the paradisial plan working for God, are not bound by limitations as to the scope and impact of this garden agenda. It actually goes on into eternity. Now, do I know that Revelation 22 opens up once again with trees and rivers? So one could easily imagine what does trees and rivers look like in a new heaven and a new earth and a new universe? It could expand out into gazillions of spaces in our world, in our universe. You never thought about that. Because you and I are confining everything to the earth realm because that's where we are at the present, right? But there are no boundaries there. Like there's no boundaries with God. He could reproduce all over the universe paradisial scenarios again and again and again. Replication is what God does. Be fruitful in what? He could do that. Could he do it? 
All right. So I shouldn't go out on this limb, but I'm trying to actually warm you up to the reality of what is called possibility with God. So right now, the way we look at our universe is that in the gazillions of galaxies, that's a number numerical value we put on it. But we don't really know the number at all. We're so wrapped up into um, metrics because that's the way that we measure things. But we really don't know. Okay. We don't know the idea of infinitude. We don't know how many galaxies are there are. We don't know how many universes there are. We know that there are a lot, right? Because we can actually guesstimate with our capacity for a telescopic sight. And it's only one place in this present galaxy that's habitable right now. Does it have to remain that way on into the eternity of eternity and eons? The answer is no. If, if, if we are part of God's eternal plan, he could expand that on out infinitely. Could he not? Right? I want you to be open to that. Okay? Right here, this first planet called Earth is a seed project for God with his people. But God says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has for them that love him. And if we are already, if we're already used to dwelling in heaven, we already can embrace that language, can we not? We're seated in heavenly places in Christ. We rule with him, right? If that's the case, who's to say what is going to be the scope of rulership after another billion years? See what I'm getting at? All right, so I'm putting that there because that is a plausible factor with a universe that in its first form appears to only have the earth as a habitable place right now. We are already peering into other planets. We are already modifying other planets in preparation for dwelling there. Is it plausible that God made those planets habitable? particularly when we have our upgrade and movement is just at the thought and not merely at the limitations of our physicality. I'm trying to open your mind to understand eternal things as plausible in the next dimension. The world that is and the world to come is right up on us. And it starts with understanding the temple paradigm. And the temple paradigm is that of God's permanent presence with his people in perfection for all eternity. The temple paradigm is God's permanent presence with his people for all eternity because of Christ. Did that come home? Really? And so this is where we're headed. And in fact, you and I are headed that way. So look at Psalm uh, uh, 52, verse 8. I'm thinking. Psalm 52, 8. I might be dyslexic as I am, but I'm not here. So here we go. Here's something interesting. Notice what it says. David says, I am like a what? Green olive tree. Ah, organic. Once again, a tree. I am like a green olive tree. And the tree here is a symbol for the believer. We know that. Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. You are the branches. So here we are in the paradiso metaphor once again at the organic level. Not only do we have the trees to eat back in the garden, but we are trees now. Is that what he's saying? David is able to embrace this because remember, he is really the first king of Israel. And he gave his son Solomon the pattern that God gave him to build the temple. And I want to press home something I've shared with you before and I want it to stick. The temple is always a composite of two kinds of material. Organic 
and concrete structural material that is uh, uh, non-living. So we we make temples out of wood and stone. And that 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 corresponds to solidity and firmness. The rock quarries that were used to build the temple of Solomon were massive rocks that came from rock quarries to stabilize it. Foundation stones, stone upon stone. So that is the solidity of the rock metaphor. Jesus is the cornerstone. Is that true? But also the temple is filled with trees. So when you get an optic of the temple, and I don't want you to ever lose it, the temple really is paradise in a worship context of that which is solid and that which is organic. They're combined. Now, pastor, it sounds like you're talking about my house. I am, but I'm not talking about your house. I'm talking about God's house. But your house reflects his house. See it? All around the world, this is what we do. We employ wood and we employ stone and other non-living organisms as God allows us to derive it out of the earth to create stability and firmness and protection. And then we adorn it with organic things, trees and plants and bushes and this and that. We're all trying to create a little taste of paradise in our space. It's intrinsic to our soul. I got to do this because otherwise I know your bodies are here, but your spirits are not. And I want you to get it. Because verse 16 is giving us the archetype. And the archetype is what you always want to keep your eyes on. You and I are already part of that building project. And we can own right along with David. I am a what kind of olive tree? That's not an accident. The olive tree is a metaphor of the Holy Spirit from which we derive the oil for the lighting of the candles, for the burning of the incense, For the production of food that we eat, we need the olive oil. See what I'm getting at? So what David is saying, not only is he a tree which is stable, but that tree grows, which is organic, and it reaches for the heights, which means it's heavenly in nature. I taught that a couple of weeks ago in Tracy. Trees reach up. Their branches reach up. So their roots go down into the earth and their branches reach up to the heavens. Do you see the correspondence? It needs the water and it needs the oxygen. It needs the sun. It needs heaven to come down and to nurture the totality of its branches, its roots, its limbs, because it goes through a photosynthesis. In order for it to convert CO2 into oxygen, right? That's what it does. You and I need the trees to breathe. I've taught that. You guys caught that, right? People are talking about cutting down trees. No. No, you cut down trees is the same as cutting down Jesus and cutting down believers and cutting away the the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit purifies the air so we can breathe it. Did it come home? It's important for you to get because the enemy wants to cut down believers who happens to be in connection with God to draw the resources of the light in order to convert the CO2 into oxygen in order for us to be able to breathe, live, and be healthy. You cut down trees, society loses its quality of life. Is that true? This is what you and I are. Now, notice he says, I'm a green olive tree um, in the house of God. That's your paradox, right? In the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God. How long? Forever and ever. That's the disposition of a real believer. All right, let's, let's go back to our text. I think I'll stop at one more, too. This is going to be Psalm 92. In Psalm 92, we'll um, 
we'll look at this here too. It kind of gives us this same kind of idea. It's going to be Psalm 92, maybe around verse 12. Verse 12, if there's a verse 12 there, I'm kind of hitting at it. Listen to it. The righteous shall flourish like the what? Now, there it is. Now, when you understand the palm tree, it's another beautiful tree. This was the first set of trees we met with in the wilderness when we came out of Egypt. And palm trees have a beautiful fruit on them. Do you know what that fruit is? What is it? Dates. (laughs) The coconut tree gives you coconuts. Dates are a beautiful thing. That's all good. Dates are a beautiful thing because they represent the sweetness of the Holy Ghost. Right. So when we mature and develop, we should have a character of sweetness that that emerges from us. And when people partake, partake of God through us, there should be sweetness there. The psalmist says the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a wet in Lebanon. See, cedars are known for their massive height, massive height. And again, it speaks to how deep the roots go how sufficient the water flow is and how prevailing they are in reaching to the heavens. This is why when we worship God, we lift them up. We lift them up. I will lift my hands to the heavens because we're reaching for God to give us what we need in order for us to be converted, in order for us to be the breath of life to people as a vehicle of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 Verse 13, just laying a foundation for you. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord. Do you see that? So then notice then that you weren't organically in God's house. God had to plant you there. You and I were outside in the chaos. He took us and placed us in Christ. And then he placed Christ in his temple because Jesus is the temple of the living God. Do you all agree with that? And so us in Christ makes us also the temple of God. We're coming back home now. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the what of our God? In the courts of our God. We're getting ready to go there. So notice where the flourishing is. The the flourishing is not outside of the temple. It's inside the temple. The flourishing is not outside. Outside is the wilderness world. It's the dry and thirsty land. It's the desert It's the place of darkness and chaos and tohu and bohu and confusion. The temple is a place of order and structure and hierarchy and fullness and sufficiency, both at the lower level of the aqueducts under the ground and at the higher level of the sun pouring down upon us everything necessary to draw out and cause us to flourish. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful thing. And it's a picture of the church. Because that's what Paul just stated, didn't he? First Corinthians chapter three, sixteen. Look at it. I just wanted to walk you through. I could take you through a bunch of more verses, but my time runs out shortly. You know that. Know you not that you are the word of God? Aha, uh-huh, there it is. So we already see two, two components, two paradoxical components. The stability of stone and wood to make the building and then the organic plant life to affirm that we are trees of life in Jesus. You see that. And that the spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him God shall what? Those are words of warning to human beings who don't understand the blessing of God's availability in Christ to them in the world. Now, human beings are acting one of two ways in our world. They're acting negligently of God 
and they're taking up with the devil to oppose God or they are submitting to God and drawing near to God and Jesus and becoming part of the developmental process of the temple. Does that make sense? There's, there's only a couple of things going on. Not a, not a whole lot going on. Uh, this is so very, very uh, clear to us. Look at first Peter chapter two, verse two and following first Peter two, three, first Peter two, three. Look at verse three. Um, if, now, so he's talking the metaphor of growing. Go to verse four. I'll start there. He says to whom coming as a living stone, that is to Jesus, disallowed of men. Jesus was direct, uh, rejected of men, but he was chosen of God. And he's also what? Look at verse five. You also, he's making a parallel between Jesus. Is Jesus the living stone? He's saying you and I are living stones too. Notice how the metaphor now becomes even more deeply paradoxical and metaphorical. A stone is not generally viewed as living, but believers are. Now, I would press a little bit further into science around rocks and tell you there are rocks that actually do grow and they do have water uh, basins in them, water sources in them. So we need to be a little bit careful about that. God knows that. okay? but we generally view rocks as inanimate, as dead, as fixed. No, that's not true. Rocks are really residuals of living organisms themselves so they can get bigger and bigger. All right. So it's very important to see that as living stones are built up a what kind of house? Ah, remember that, because this is what Paul is going to be talking about in a in a moment. The difference between the carnal man and the what kind of man? He's already been talking about it. He's already laid out the smaller arguments. Now he's putting those arguments together in a big optic called an archetype. We're getting ready to go back to that. The carnal man versus the spiritual man. Obviously, we're being called to grow up and be built up. That's a present verb form. You are also living stones and are being built up. Okay, that's what that is in the verb form. A spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. He's the first cause by our mediator who Jesus the Christ. Right there it is. Peter gives us the language very clearly. Go back to our text. Let's go to work now a little bit on the argument that precedes this optic that we need to deal with. We've got about 45 minutes and then we will be able to work it through. Under our first point, they were corrupted by their politics. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, I want you to notice what Paul says. And I, brethren, I could not speak unto you as unto what? Now, I want you to mark that because we just saw that what Peter said is we are a spiritual house. So the qualitative nature of believers is that they are spiritual and not carnal. That's the qualitative nature. That's not the practical nature. That is the qualitative nature. And, And we would follow that would follow since God is spirit. And if God is spirit and we are God's children, we have to be viewed as what? Spiritual. So but here's what Paul says. I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto what? So that's your that's your tension there. Carnality, sarkikos, meaning fleshly people. I just want you to mark that. okay? fleshly people, people who are living only in the dominion of the physical realm and are operating out of a need for fleshly things. That's what carnality is. Carnality is the idea that the only thing that matters is the here and now. 
And the only thing that matters is my limbic system being satisfied with all of the urges that it compels me towards. And you and I were looking at the mass law um, hierarchy in our first um, rules of engagement class. And the hierarchy of the mass law rule is that we need physical food. We need shelter. We need relationship. We need affirmation of our identity. We need a purpose. And that purpose has to be actually guided by a higher principle. Right. All of those categories are the way you and I live and we can't ignore them like you can't ignore relationship. You can try to, but it won't work. God made you for relationship and you can't ignore the need to be provisional for yourself and others. You can ignore it if you want to. But God made Adam to work and he put him in a place where he could uh, where he could cultivate produce so he could eat. So people got to eat. You have to eat. I have to eat. And then work is not enough. We have to be in relationship because our identity is Our identity is affirmed and strengthened in communication with people of our kind. So when Adam was given the right to name all the animals, he helped them understand who they were, male and female. But he was standing around at the end of the day with dirt under his fingernail trying to figure out who he was. And God intervened and said, all right, let me help this brother and give him a helper to actually correspond to him on the other side of him so that he can begin to know himself better. That's called a spouse. A spouse is a helper. We'll be drilling down into that tomorrow. A spouse is an antithesis at the helper level. We call her a friendly adversary. Okay, (laughs) Some things, some things went wrong, but that's where we're going to start. She's a friendly adversary because her job is to help cultivate him into his purpose. Remember, he's provisio, she's support. He's provisio, she's support. All right, so I hope that, I hope that bears itself out. Carnality, however, under subpoint uh, A, carnality impedes what? Spir- All right, so this is the thing that Paul was dealing with last time, which is a real problem. This is why we got to be careful about being trapped by our carnal impulses as a dominant mode of thinking and being. We got to be careful not to be trapped by. We have to at all times know how to manage our carnality. It's one of the things I'm teaching us in the marriage series. It's not about controlling. It's about what? You have to hear that. It's not about controlling, it's about managing. When you and I are managing, that means we can live with the conflict and contradiction because the contradiction also keeps us honest about who we really are. And honesty is the only way you grow. You don't grow by lying about yourself, lying about God, or lying about anything else. So so when God gives us the grace to manage ourselves, what we come to discover is we need grace to do it. That grace is simply a symbol of relationship because if grace is present for management, that means God gave it. That means God is present to engage you at the resource level. And that's what a father or not a father, but a husband is. A husband is a resourcer that grants the necessary tools for the wife to cultivate the home. And she's supporting him, too. So it's reciprocal. Y'all figured that out, right? It's a reciprocating relationship. And so it is with us and God. So what God does is he calls us into his story, doesn't he? And Adam is in the middle of God's story right now, is he not? 
And God says, hey, all of this is yours. Cultivate it, till it, bring me glory and spread this plan around the world. But there's something going on. Carnality impedes. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 1, 2 and 3. Look at verse 2 and 3. Let's kind of tap into that. He says, I couldn't speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto uh, carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. You see that? So what he does with that babe in Christ thing, which you can take and own it for a moment, because this is just a small time marker. It's, this is a humble rebuke. So just accept it as a humble rebuke, because the opposite of a babe is a mature person. Are grown, which is the word we learned last week was in the Greek perfect. Do you remember that? So it's important to know that when you and I are called babes, it simply means we are inadequate to the task. Inadequate to the task. When we're called perfect, we'll get there in a moment again because we've got to walk it through. It means we have come into maturity and we are now competent and capable of the task at hand. This is why you and I go through the scholastic process here in the West of raising kids and educating them up to the 12th and up to the 15th year and 16th year till those 17 or 18. And we then begin to designate them as an adult. Did that make sense? So it's the same thing in the spiritual dimension. You can't circumvent growth. You can't circumvent the process of growth that needs to move us out of a babe state because a babe state is a carnal state. You agree with that? It's all about me me, me, me. That's a babe. Is that true? And they act like it from the moment they come out the womb. Everything in the world is about them. They don't even have a remote notion that other things matter. That's what it means to be a babe. And what Paul is saying is that that's what's happening here with the Corinthians, they have fallen prey to the carnality of being self-centered. And that self-centeredness now opens up the door for a party spirit. That's what politics is about. Look at verse three. For you are carnal. I'm sorry, verse two. For I fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able to bear it. Do you guys see that? So again, here's a, here's a profound metaphor. I won't stay on it long because we talked about it last week, because this is what I was telling you. We're coming from chapter two into chapter three. The same argument is laid out. He says the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. Remember that? And so for the natural man, he can't even handle fundamental gospel principles. So here's here's what happens to a natural person when you say to them, the Bible is clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The natural man, the carnal man who thinks he's all that says, I don't believe that. That's stupid. That's moronic. It makes no sense. You don't get to destroy my self-esteem by calling me a sinner. That's his pushback. That's his pushback. Go back to chapter two. and I want you to see it over in verse 14. Notice what he says in verse 14. But the natural man receives not the things of the what? Now, all right, so remember what I told you that was? That's the Greek term dekomai, and it means to push away. It's an intrinsic repelling against biblical truth that identifies us for what we are by nature. This is why you don't have many sinners in the world. 
Most people are not sinners. Most people are not sinners. To find a sinner is truly a miraculous thing. Because most people don't agree with God. I am not that bad. And that's the conflict, James, between, let's say, the Arminian system and the Calvinist system, because the Calvinist system will say your Bible says there's none good. Now, that's what we call an absolute proposition. That's Romans 3. That's Psalm 14. That's Psalm 58. That's Ecclesiastes 720. Okay, that's John chapter 8, where Jesus says Moses gave you the law and none of you kept it. Those are absolute statements. You guys understand that, right? Listen very carefully. If Jesus says Moses gave you the law and none of you kept it, is there an exception to that proposition? None. So, so when, Isaiah, when, when David says there's none good, no, not one, and Isaiah says we all like sheep have gone astray, and Jesus says nobody has kept the law, then are we going to argue with God? So, no, no, I kept the law. I love you, God. No, you don't. You love yourself and you love your notion of loving God, but you don't love God because as we're going to learn on Sunday, to love God is to act in a way that corresponds to him being the highest value in relationship to what his word says. When you love somebody, it's not a feeling first. It's an action first. Does that make some sense? And when human beings are examined in terms of what they love, the last thing they love is God. They love the world. They love the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh. They love the pride of life. They love their ego. See what I'm getting at? That's humanity. That's all of us by nature. That's what Jesus said. So we have a predicament. And that predicament is, will we actually let God take our chaos and organize it? Because at the mental level, you and I are confused if you're saying one thing and God saying another. If God is saying you walk in darkness and you say, no, I'm the very light of the world. (laughs) You're lying. And if God says you're spiritually dead and you say, no, I soar to the heights of heaven, you're lying again. And what the Bible tells us is those are the marks of the devil. John 8, 44. He was a liar from the beginning. He never abode in the truth. All he does is lie. So when God actually begins a work in you, It's a remarkable work of getting you to a point where you agree with them against yourself. Did that make some sense? That's a remarkable work. I I told you the story before. I I told you. I used to I used to watch it all the time. Forty eight hours. Does anybody watch forty eight hours? It's the criminal kind of um, uh, uh, real uh, real show where they where they catch criminals in the act on camera. We, we, We got them dead on camera. And once they get pulled into the investigation room, they lie until their teeth fall out. It was not me. I was not there. You got the wrong person. And and the Bible says on the day of judgment, people are going to try to do the same thing. But according to John uh, Romans chapter three, around verse 19, Romans 319, God will stop every mouth. Now, I've been to court many times. Your pastor had been to jail. I already know how it goes. When we we are caught in our criminality, as they are taking us to the uh, city jail, we are already conniving and manipulating in our mind how we're going to frame our excuse for being the wrong person they took. (laughs) Did you hear what I just said? 
We're working 24 hours planning on how we're going to tell our attorney or our public defender how I was wronged and set up. I was sleepwalking and went into that store and, and robbed them. I, I don't know what came over me. So we're, we're doing all of this fabricating, which is the unreal world that this society is trying to move you into now. So I'm talking about that now, how people are being trapped by the unreal world and it's a substitute for the real world. And they keep playing this hocus pocus game and getting you to think that we're something that we're not. And see, and see, so when we say that the devil is a liar and never has a vote in the truth, he has a whole host of human beings that are doing what he does. Just lying about everything. All right. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes unto the father, but recognizing that they got to tell the truth. Right. And so this is what we're dealing with. And carnal men, carnal women like babies will lie to get their way. Like you don't have to teach your children to lie. It just emerges in their imagination and they are as creative as any, you know, artist or um, anybody. And you sit there and you listen to it and you go, this is so funny. This is so funny. This, this, you actually got some gifts, son. You're sitting up here building whole cloth lies, right? You just need to convert that into something more honest and organic. But we're liars by nature. We go astray from the womb, Isaiah 58, speaking lies. <clears throat> so we laugh about it because, you know, they have our nature. But we watch them, and, and as they get older, it gets harder to deal with them because their lies become more crafty. They become more subtle. They learned it from you. And as you got older and got a, a lot less slick about it, they got a lot more slick about it. And they pulled the wool over your eyes after a while. And sometimes because you and I can't, <clears throat> I'm getting ready to make an application here. And sometimes because you and I can't manage their lying, we settle for unreality. We settle for unreality. And that's what's going on in our world. The world is settling for unreality. Did y'all hear me? When you have on every female magazine a trans person, you are settling for an unreality. And it's in your face telling you this is reality. What used to be reality is unreality, and what is unreality is reality. I need you to get that because this I'll be driving home. This started way back in the previous election. That's where it started, as a big optic around the world. And nobody wants to admit what they really saw. So you're being bombarded all the time with lies. And you see how you can gradually be nudged into capitulating if the majority voice keeps pressing in on you? Can y'all hear me? Yes. Right. And see, this is why it takes grace is what I'm be talking about, what it means to be masculine tomorrow versus feminine. Because if you are not masculine at the right time in the right way, you will never be able to stand for the truth. Because I'm going to show you tomorrow that our world is being inverted because what Paul is actually teaching is the temple is a hierarchical principle that starts with God. And then it moves to Jesus because Christ is our mediator to get us back to God. Then it goes to mankind and then it goes to woman 
And this here is how you have what is called a family. Would you agree? Is this family? Right. Without God, no Christ. Without Christ, no man. Without man, no woman. Without this hierarchy, no family, no children, no offspring. That's making sense, right? Is that making sense to you? And now take this and invert this. Put God on the bottom. Put man next. Put Christ, uh, put Christ next. Put man. And then who's on the top? Woman. Did y'all put it up there? Do you see the inversion? So this here from the top down, this is what we call hierarchy. This is inversion going up. God is beneath Christ is after that. Man is after that. And now the woman is on top. Do you see the woman up there? This is the final stage before we get to trans what? Humanism. It's turning things upside down. Do we get that? Did y'all get that? We're there now. God's way on the bottom. Jesus is a subordinate entity. You can love him if you want to, but he don't mean much. And we didn't already de-emasculated man, have we not? And the woman is sitting supreme. It's so powerful that men are wanting to become women. Wake up. Um, let me see something. Um, Louis, the AC probably cut on on there. And, it's, and can you just uh, uh, cut it off or put it on 74? Just run it all the way up the top of the notch. We'll see if we can get some balance before it gets too cold. Do you guys get that optic? Yeah. Right. Do you get that optic? This is what we're doing now. We've turned it upside down because we're carnal and we're babes and we're used to telling stories now. We don't like telling the truth because that's a hard route to follow. Okay. So it's really important for you to see that. Um, all right. <clears throat> this is what Paul said. Now, we know that whatsoever things the law says is said to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become what? Right. No one's going to be able to manipulate God in the judgment. Forty eight hours ain't going to work in the judgment. I mean, it's cunning the way they work, don't they? Have y'all watched it? I'm like, do, do, do. Don't you know they got the cameras on you? Dude, just give it up, dude. Give it up. Start your time now. Give it up. Just hope for a merciful judge, right? And that's what God is, a merciful judge. But the price of exchange is Jesus. The price of exchange is Jesus. It's very important to get. So going back to our first point, they were corrupted by politics. And we know this because our text will tell us in First Corinthians chapter uh, four, uh, chapter three, verse three, these words, uh, verse four, rather. For while one saith, I am a Paul and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not what? Right. And did we just get that back over in chapter one? If you look over in chapter one, where the apostle Paul said the same thing over in um, verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of, a, of a, a Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see what Paul is recognizing? Paul is recognizing that the hierarchy that I just talked about was in danger. He says, the Corinthians, you guys are turning things upside down. By the time we get to 1 Corinthians 14, where we're dealing with the um, gifts of the spirit, he's going to be dealing with it once again, because he's saying you guys are operating out of the chaos that God delivered you from. 
Every man has a tongue. Every man has a dream. Every man has a vision. Every man has a revelation. Every man is saying this. Every man is saying that. Women are doing this. Women are running around bald-headed, trying to be priests in the church. This is your Delphi Oracle priesthood, um, um, what we call invasion into the church. Because whether you know it or not, the feminist movement was prominent in, in first century Corinth. It was prominent because the Roman Empire was already crumbling. And where men failed to actually occupy positions of righteous authority, then women are compelled to move into those positions. And so what the chicks started doing was cutting their hair so that we can move into the androgynous appearance. Now, that, too, is unreal. So they don't look like either a man or a woman. This here is your unisex. This is your queer theory back in the first century. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? This is your queer theory in the first century. Don't think that where we are now is so brand new. It's old. It's old. And this is why Paul is warning about it. So under point number one, we have carnal divisions, which impede spiritual sight. I love this. Look at chapter two, starting at verse 14 through 16. I want to um, set this for. Um, I'm going to start at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So you got to have God's spirit to know the things of God. That's a logical, um, logical extraction from the verse, right? Which things also we what? So what God is giving us is a revelation of his will that we communicate to people. So when we are actually communicating biblical truth, it is the process of God giving it to us and it being translatable into languages, la land, speech, where we can share it with the world, like what I'm doing with you. So the church is asserting that God is on top and Christ is our mediator. And Christ already said in John 16, I am going to send the comforter who will guide you into all truth. He will take the things of mine and show it to you so that you can share it with the world. So we're dealing with the hierarchy of God in Christ, working through men who are called to be apostles and prophets and and teachers and pastors. Right. In order to communicate that truth to the body of believers who are men and women so that men and women get to share the gospel everywhere they go and hopefully impact other human beings with a top down theory of God's mercy in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Now, notice what he says. And he says, which things we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost. Now, the Holy Ghost is the third person. That's what Jesus said will come. So the Holy Ghost is a teacher, isn't he? That's what it says. Did that make some sense? All right. Do some be an exegetical thinker. If the Holy Ghost is a teacher, it means the Holy Ghost is a person. He's not just a force. A force doesn't teach you language, how to parse sentences and how to do exegesis. A person does. So the third person is a teacher. He will teach you. So he says he teaches and here's how he does it. Comparing spiritual things with what? So I'm going to help you with that. This is not an exegetical device. This is a relational principle. This is not going comparing scripture with scripture, as you would hear people say, because a person could put one Bible verse with another Bible verse and be lying about the Bible verse. 
Did that make some sense? You could be taking one Bible verse here and put it with another Bible verse there and your premise be flawed. Even though you got two verses affirming each other, you could still be lying. Yes, you got all kinds of scholarly heretics. And they're so sharp in their theological framings and their systems that without your being given spiritual discernment, you won't know they lie to you. So you and I need more than a set of exegetical mechanisms. I frequently this has occurred for me over all of the years I've been pastoring with men and women. Pastor, I want to know what you know. I want to know what you know. I want to know how to learn how you learn. I want to teach like you teach. I get it. But the only reason you are asking that is because you want to be able to handle God's word. Now, to do that, you can't just learn a method from me. You have to learn from God. Right. So now there's something that has to happen to you. You have to be submissive to God to actually bring you into a place where you can begin to comprehend truth as it is coherently taught. Did that make some sense? Right. And so Jesus and the disciples are the model. So Jesus comes along. He says, hey, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. This is where we're getting ready to go. I got about 20 more minutes before we break. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So I tell I tell people this all the time. Jesus didn't come to merely be a scholastic teacher. Like he didn't send out cards and say, meet me every Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday at the synagogue because I'm teaching. He didn't do that. He said, follow me. That means live with me. Watch how I go hither and there and engage with this person and that person and work with this group and that group and how we live missionally this way and that way. Watch me interact. This is how you're going to learn what truth is. Did that come home? Right. So Jesus becomes for us a revelation of the invisible God bodily. He embodies the revelation of God, who God is and what God's will is for our life. And Jesus lived it out. And those 12 men walked with Jesus for three and a half years while he lived it out. Now, granted, a primary job of Jesus was to teach the kingdom of God. There's no doubt about it. After his baptism, he went straightway doing what? Preaching the kingdom. But he did more than preach the kingdom. He ate and drank with publicans and sinners and tax collectors. He developed family relationships with like Lazarus and Mary and Martha and many others. And he engaged in the temple and he engaged in the synagogues and he engaged in the streets. And he met people where they were and engaged in meeting their needs. Did that make some sense? That is called the messianic vision. So the disciples are kicking it with this brother who actually had a profoundly committed relationship with God, of which he said in John chapter five, I work and my father is working. In other words, I'm not doing this of my own volition. God is working in me and God is working through me. And what you see is really God's work. Did that make some sense? So that reestablishes what I was saying before, how that God was working in Christ to work in men and women to bring about the family of God. Did that come home? God is working in Christ. He's the revelation. And Christ uses the spirit to work in man. The Holy Ghost makes Jesus a reality. And if Jesus is a reality to us, then he leads us to the father, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the father but by me. 
And then we as his disciples, men and women, we live out the familial life of a theological family, which is equivalent to a temple life. It's equivalent to a temple life. Because I told you, God intentionally made the temple a consequence of stones and wood and then plants and bushes and and flowers and all that, like we do our own home. And he allowed us to proliferate with kids like we do our own home. And he allowed us to work a business like we do in our own home. And our home is supposed to be a sanctuary. See what I'm getting at? And the church is supposed to be a macrocosm. Not micro, a macrocosm of it. In process. Let me touch on that so you can get it and I'll move on to my next point. So when the church is done well, and it does do well throughout the course of history, the church is a macrocosm of multiple families coming together who are microcosms of the larger family of God at the temple paradigm level. Did that come home? Right. So the church is a macro family consisting of micro families that are striving to live according to the archetypal paradigm of a temple motif. So so like what you guys got last Saturday, and I I really am looking for one more young couple to uh, to walk the plank tomorrow. I need one more young married couple. I got one that's coming to come out and walk the plank so we can talk about the challenges of marriage because marriage is challenging. Just like living for Jesus is challenging. Suck it up. Living for Jesus is challenging. Suck it up. Jesus living for us was challenging. Suck it up. (laughs) See what I'm getting at? Jesus, this is hard. You think it was hard for you. You didn't walk the plank, he walked. And so, yes, it's hard, but it's very rewarding. So um, when, when families get a little bit of grip on the temple paradigm, home then should be aiming at the presence of the kingdom of God in it. Righteousness. Peace. Joy in the Holy Ghost. So I'm putting out some stuff for tomorrow. That was the way I lived my life. My kids are listening. They'll tell you. That's why I put a mic up there and a seat for my wife. Anytime she want to come up and veto what I'm saying, she can come. (laughs) Because I'm not going to lie to you. I'm way too old in the game to lie now. I don't I don't need to prove anything. My kids are grown. I'm in the multiple grandkids now, happy about it. I'm so glad I'm done raising kids. Woo! Um, but one of the things I learned early on in our marriage when I wasn't clear on the, what we call chief organizing principle, how to keep the hierarchy of what's important in the center of our home. Because we are constantly dealing with a vortex swinging us out into needs all the time. Y'all follow what I'm saying? It's sweet. This is a centripetal force sweeping us out to go work and pay the bills and take the kids here and do this and do that and do that. And then home can be just come a place that you just come eat, go to sleep and then go do it again tomorrow. Right. And it doesn't carry the temple paradigm. It doesn't become the place of refuge. It should be a refuge 
from storms. It should be a place where everybody can go into their quarter and rest. Because you know you got to go back out into the world in a minute. So with a husband and wife, they should be prioritizing righteousness because righteousness is right doing. Did that make some sense? I mean, don't take it in the sterile sense. Take it in the pragmatic sense. What's right? What should we be doing that's right? We should be serving one another. We should be talking right to one another. We should be prioritizing our life with one another. We should be communicating, collaborating, right? We should be co-laboring together and we should be cultivating, cooperating and cultivating. That's what we should be doing. Is that true? If we're doing that right, then we will create a pattern of consistency over over time that reaps the benefit of communication and of collaboration, of cooperation and cultivation. Right. It, It will it will it will reap the benefits of a pattern. We call that a culture. I'm teaching the young people. So you start early. Right. When you start seducing each other, I told you marriage starts with seduction as you're seducing each other. You learn how to talk, right? Because you, you got to conflate both because seduction is attraction until you attach. Once you attach, love has to take over. And love is not seduction. Did, y'all, did you get that? Love is a paradigm of giving for the purpose of resting. Love is a paradigm of giving for the purpose of resting. Home is to be a place where you rest. When God made Adam and put him in the midst of the garden, Adam was in a state of rest. He didn't have to sow seed. He didn't have to follow the ground. He didn't have to remove thorns and thistles. He got to enjoy an already established scenario where he could wonderfully engage in the tilling and keeping of it in a restful disposition. See what I'm getting at? Right. And, and that's the way our life should be. The tension between labor and rest, labor, six days, rest, labor, six days and rest, labor, eight hours and rest. Go to work, come home and rest. And resting is really about refreshing, recuperating, restoring, because you got to do it again tomorrow. So home should be what we call chill spot. And, 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 and kids When they have chill spot in the home, they love home. When home is chill spot where they can kick their shoes off and just lay back and they got their own quarter of the house, they love it. Now, what they don't love because they're children is chores. But we don't care. We don't care. Do your chores. Right. We don't care about your complaining. And we love you so much. We don't care about what you look like with your twisted, mean, mugging face while you do it. We don't care. We don't care. We know you're going to be grown in a minute and out. We're counting the clock. We don't care. We know you're going to be gone in a minute. We love you. We don't care. Whine and and complain. We don't care. We did it too. And by the way, if you get seduced young enough, you're going to be in our spot sooner than you know it. And the tables will be turned. Right. It's a beautiful thing. So it's important for you and I to understand how this hierarchy works. When he says comparing spiritual things to spiritual, I'm going to tell you what this is. This will help you. The Holy Ghost takes the scripture. That's spiritual things and makes them known 
to true believers who are spiritual in nature. I want you to get that. The Holy Ghost takes scripture and makes it known to believers who are spiritual in nature. We know that because the previous verse says, or the next verse says, the natural man does not receive the things of God. Did that come home? I want you to, I want you to get that. The Holy Spirit takes the scriptures and they open, he opens them up to us. And it makes sense. This is Jesus using the paraclete after the resurrection on his way to Jerusalem. I mean, on his way with the two boys to Emmaus. And as he's walking and talking to them, he took the scriptures and expounded unto them all things from Moses to the end of the prophets. And remember what they said? Did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? They weren't scholars. They were just believers. And the Holy Ghost made them to see that from Genesis to Malachi, that whole book was about Jesus. Because that's what he said, right? And he began at Moses and all the scriptures, explaining to them the things concerning himself. And what we teach is Jesus is the hymn book of the Bible. When you get Jesus right in the Bible, it means the Holy Spirit has helped you to see the second person. You need the third person to see the second person. You need the second person to see. You can't see the first person without the second. You can't see the second without the third. And then once the church has the spirit of God at the paraclete level, we can help other people see him as well. Because that's what Paul is doing, helping the church see Jesus. This is what Paul's whole purpose was. If you go back to Acts chapter 26, you'll see it. The Apostle Paul was told in Acts chapter 26 to to help the people of God see these things. And this is really, again, paradoxical because he's actually being told by Christ what his mission was. Although he's acknowledging right now that in the church at Corinth, this is not happening. I'm over in Acts chapter 26. Notice what it says in verse 16. This is Jesus talking to Paul. You there? But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared unto you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen, past tense, and of those things in which I will appear unto you, future tense. That means Jesus is hanging out with Paul. Now look at the next verse. Delivering you from the people. Is that what Jesus did? Kept delivering Paul, didn't he? And from the Gentiles. So who are the people here? The Jews, exegetical, and from the Gentiles. So if the previous line is the people and the second line is the Gentiles, the people are who? Y'all got that? That, that helps you also with construction in, in Greek thought. It, they do it both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. This is Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The heathen are the Gentile, the goyim, and the people are the you guys got it. Delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles whom now I send thee. Now notice what's going on. God, Christ is sending Paul into these communities that want to kill him. And he says, don't worry about it. I'll deliver you. That's the paradoxical nation, nature of missionary work. So you got to love people with an agape to go into their community knowing that you're in danger of losing your life. Am I making some sense? All right, here it is. 
Verse 18. Here it is. Verse 18. What is he going to do? What are you going to do, Paul? To open their eyes. Do you see it? And to turn them from what? Chaos to what? Order. See it? From chaos to order. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And the Lord said, let there be light. So now God is creating order out of chaos in the Genesis narrative. Here is what happens with men and women who are lost spiritually. They're in a state of chaos and the light of the gospel comes in to help bring order. We're all who are truly submissive to God being brought into a state of order as I speak. Very true. The power of say from the power of Satan to to God in order that they may receive what? Forgiveness of sins. Aha, there it is. Stay there. Remember, I told you when we're walking in darkness, we don't believe that we're sinners. When we're walking in darkness, we're not that bad. But when the lights cut on, we recognize that we're the worst sinner on the planet. And now forgiveness is like a sweet date off of the palm tree that God gives us to nurture our soul and strengthen us in our inner man to keep walking with God. See it? Forgiveness is a beautiful thing to a sinner. And an inheritance among all them that are set apart by faith that is in Jesus. Jesus is talking here. Set apart, that's election. By faith, that's a conviction of the things that God said is true. By Jesus. So the object of our whole epistemology, the object of our whole theological framework is Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, Jesus. Yep, Jesus. He is our chief organizing principle. When you lose Jesus, you lose sight. The further away you get from Jesus, the darker you are. You're just descending back into darkness. You're descending into darkness. You guys see that. All right, let's move on to point number two for a few minutes. And then I'm going to open up the mic for conversation. And then we'll come back here. I want you to see now order because we're looking at chaos with the um, with the uh, uh, present verses that Paul are laying out in First Corinthians chapter uh, uh, three, verse one and two. We're dealing with the chaos of the condition of the church at Corinth. You are uh, verse three, for you are yet carnal for whereas there's among you even envying and strife and division. Are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, another I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Paul is driving home the part. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers by whom you what? Even as the Lord gave to every man. See what he does here? He takes Apollos and Paul and snatches them up out of the party spirit of the people he's writing to. Because now they're at odds. I am of Paul. That's a group over here. I am of Apollos. That's a group over there. Which means if I am of Apollos, I am not of Paul. This is what we call the dialectical process. This is called politics. I'm a Republican, which means if you're a Republican, you're not a Democrat. I'm a liberal. If, if you're liberal, it means you're not a conservative. That's where politics can never, ever be a substitute for the gospel. Because it fails to do gospel at the unity level. Did y'all hear what I just stated? 
And this is why today politics has usurped the church. It is the new mystery religion. Keep up with me. Make that a big archetype. This is called an anti-archetype. The Antichrist is a politi- political religio system. The Antichrist is a political religio system. I remember saying this 20 something years ago. Do politicians walk as men? Are they carnal? Are they divisive? Do they engage in strife and envy? Weren't we among some of that? We thought we were doing a great thing. All we were doing was being used by the puppet masters way above to continue fighting. So I taught you how this goes. This is the dialectical process. This started way back with feminism. The feminist rights movement. We want our rights. See, this is politics. We want our rights. Okay, y'all got your rights. What's next? Now we got to beat down the men. We got to turn them into doofuses and stupid people. That's where all your movies came in. All your movies came in with men being stupid and dumb. This is called emasculating them. This is why our homosexuality proliferated. You can write it down. This is called the devouring mother. The devouring mother. This is where the patriarchal family developed the devouring mother where she controls everything under her. She controls her husband. She controls her kids. She controls her sons and controls her daughters. Y'all know what I'm saying is true. This is called the matriarchal mother because she wasn't kept in her place as we're going to talk about tomorrow. And so the kids were maladjusted to a society where they're used to women having the dominant voice. Right. And this is where homosexuality prevailed, because this is part of a condition. I know they'll get mad, but this is a part of a condition called pre-adolescent syndrome. You're in a pre-adolescent syndrome. So when you're in a pre-adolescent syndrome, you aren't allowed to develop in the compatibility of your hormonal makeup, which are psychological and neurological makeup. So you might grow physically, but in your characterological traits, you're like a little boy still. Did that make some sense? And because you're like a little boy still, you are still in need of mommy, mommy. And that makes you vulnerable to other boys that are in need of mommy, mommy. And when you're in a culture where it's a hyper matriarchal, hostile patriarchal, that's politics, then the father is the evil one. And so there's an aversion to the father in that kind of community. Y'all know what I'm saying. It's true. So just suck it up and get it. Because the church is full of that, too. The church is full of that, too. And so the boy never, ever matures into what we call biblical masculinity, which is what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Because the masculinity was hijacked by the mother. And this is where our culture presently has a hyper feminine masculinity syndrome as well. See what I'm getting at? Right. So what we did was shrink the man down to a pygmy. Where your daddy? I don't know. He running around somewhere here. Look up under the couch. (laughs) Very important, you guys. Very important for you to see this. Look at verse four. Um, um, Sorry. Look at verse five. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. So Paul is once again reiterating the instrumentality of preaching by which you and I get the light. That brings us out of the darkness into order from chaos. And and, and again, this is where our secular world hates the Bible because Christ used men to do it. 
Here's what I love about Jesus. He loved him some women. Y'all know that. He loved him some women. You, you, you know, the women's was the first ones at the tomb. And that's because they saw a real man. They didn't see a sissy. They didn't see a punk. They didn't see a diminished human being. They didn't see somebody they could take advantage of. Jesus came in the ministry whipping tail. Didn't I tell you all that? He came in the ministry, went straight up into the temple, took down those strips and turned them into whips. You, you, got to be, you got to have some kahunas to go into a temple where the priest and the lawyers is making all that money and you just tatty business up. You, you got to be a, a tight brother. We call that a real brother in the hood. That's a real brother, man. That's a real brother. In there. And he didn't even straighten it out when he left. He left them to straighten it out. And he kept preaching in the temple and in the synagogues for three and a half years and didn't nobody touch him because he was a real man. And he pulled up 12 brothers and said, y'all follow me. I'm going to teach you how to take the world over. Now, a group of men like that will be killed by the government every time. Did you hear me? So they killed him and they'll kill James and they tried to kill Peter, according to the book of Acts. And they killed all of the apostles before the first century was out, except for John. Killed them all because they had been with Jesus. See, they were real men. They were real men, ladies and gentlemen, real men. And real men are scary to governments. Because every government knows that enough real men will topple a government. You understand that? Right. This is what and, 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 and the gospel's done that for 2000 years. It's been able to penetrate into wild, freakish, cultic, um, uh, pagan religious systems like the Roman Empire and, and, and knocked it straight on down and Christianized it. And men and women learned how to live respectfully with each other and have children and, and walk according to the fundamentals of Torah, as we're going to learn on Sunday. Roman Empire. It still had all of its crazy mess, but it was ordering. Does that make some sense? It was ordering. The chaos was being settled and it was ordering. See, see, God never said the gospel is going to fix everything in your life. He says, but he will order. It will order your life in a way in which your life becomes more manageable. So you and I, many of us who are old enough now remember the mayhem of the 50s and the 60s. During that time, the only thing that could straighten out the chaos that was brought in by many entities in, con- in considering and in- including our government, the only thing that could straighten it out was level headed brothers who knew how to train men to be right. I'll leave you to fill in the spaces there. Because if you go back through the 60s, 50s and 60s, all the brothers got killed. When I use the word brothers, I'm not talking merely ethnically. I'm talking trans-ethnically. I'm talking about my Irish brothers. I'm talking about my black brothers. I'm talking about my Caucasian brothers. I'm talking about my Latino brothers. They all got killed. Anybody listening to me? They all got killed for being men. So we're on the brink of it now. And the same thing is going to have to happen. Now, I can tell you, I'm going to stop here. I'm I'm willing to open the floor. I can tell you we can we can recover our nation. But guess who's going to have to be a fundamental 
um, driver in that recovery? Women. Yeah. Women. Not leadership, but facilitating and supporting. Why? Because women are on top now. And women are dealing with the rewards of, of transgenderism. Women are, are dealing with the rewards of transgender. Women are getting what they want. They're getting their, their, their boys to be the little girls that they pretty much foisted them into being. That's right. Women are getting what they want. So a hyper matriarchal woman cannot handle a, a, a patriarchal man. Just listen to me very carefully. A hyper matriarchal woman cannot handle a patriarchal man. He's a threat to her. Because a hyper matriarchal woman wants everyone under her feet. That's Jezebel. That's Athaliah. They both killed all of the male seed. Did that make some sense? I want you to get that. Because I'm going to unpack it tomorrow. The reason why we have a hard time as men and women is because we don't understand our roles. And then when a brother stands up and take on the masculine role of equanimity and says, no, no, you can't do that. Then a sister wants to engage in a whole all out war. And when you got the government behind you, the brother loses. And they lost. Ladies and gentlemen, the brothers have lost. You don't even have to go far to see that everywhere. The universities are filled with women and brothers don't even want to go. Because if we look at y'all the wrong way because your butt's so big, we're going to jail. Am I telling the truth? Am I telling the truth? And, all, and that's just supposed to be the compliment of being male and female. That's supposed to be complementarian. Like, so you can't be a beautiful female in the organic sense in which a brother is attracted to you without that brother being liable for uh, being accused of, of um, sexual harassment. See what I'm getting at? They said, no, I ain't going to, uh-uh, not me. Because now, today, we're guilty before proven. That's everywhere. See, so our laws used to be innocent until proven guilty. Today, we're guilty before proven. So the brothers, we doing school online. Online. What time the sister's leaving? Then we'll go in. When they coming, we going out. This is the division between men and women that we're at now. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Right. And it's just as bad in the church because we have effeminized the church for the last 50 years, too. If our men were solid, you'd hear more people, you'd hear more pastors talking like me because it used to be that way. You'd hear more pastors. So now our our reform brother and just just wrote out a a thesis in our uh, an article recently, G3, about we need to return the pulpit to prophetic teaching. I've been talking about that forever, have I not? The prophetic word, the prophetic word that lays down on the culture and exposes the culture for what it is and tells the culture to repent. But what have you been doing all these years? 
It's way late for the prophetic word in that regard. You see what I'm getting at? Right. And so we are at that space now, you guys, where we have to face first principles. We have to face first principles and then say, "Okay, Lord, where am I at in proximity to what it means to be a biblical woman or a biblical man and help me line back up? See what I'm getting at? All right. Q&A time. Any questions? Because I'm going to get us out of here in 15 minutes after Q&A. Q&A. Anything, anything on your heart and mind. Don't, don't be afraid as long as it's not dumb, because if it's dumb, I'm going to cut, cut it off. <laughs> Think it through. I don't, want, I, don't want, I, don't want, I don't want it to be unreasonable or convoluted. All right, so I'm going to start with my sister Sherry right there. I just wondered why when you talk... You got to keep the mic to your mouth. I just wondered why it says... God, Christ, man and woman. But what about first the ho- Corinthians 11, please. First Corinthians 11, verse two. I was Go just going to say, what about the Holy Spirit? The, in the that? Holy Spirit is here. This is where the Holy Spirit is. Okay. I'm showing you the Bible verse so you can see it. And, the, and, the, and the, it's extremely important to catch it. This is first Corinthians chapter 11, verse two. Give me verse three. But I wouldn't I would have you to know that the head of every man is what? Right. All right. So do we have the order right? Right. So here's the man and his head is who? And then notice what it says. And the head of the woman is what? So here's the woman and her head is here. Who is that? The man. So Christ has a head, which is God. And the man has a head, which is Christ. And the woman has a head, which is who? Notice what it says. And the head of Christ is who? But we got that reversed today. God is not central. Christ is not needed. Man is being relegated and the woman is on the pinnacle. We already know this. So I hope that hope that helps with you there. Um, It's extremely important for us to understand what's happening in our society. And this means that Satan is running our world. That's what that means. You have to know that because who did he go after first? And she turned that whole thing upside down. And I'm going to help some of you who understand marriage. Now watch this. Eve was created in a context of love. God had already created a beautiful world. She gave, he gave her a dope husband. He was dope. Adam was dope. Adam had his own business. He had good worship with God. His business was thriving and growing so much. He got to have a partner. And she came fully grown. And he was already fully grown. So all they need to do is now go to work together. Is that right? That's called love. That's the agape. And what did the devil come to do? He came to strike in her desire. Now, remember, I taught you this last Saturday. Love is rest. Desire is longing. Desire is a precursor to love when the end game of desire is to find a resting place. Does that make some sense? That's right. When you have desire, you want that desire to terminate in love. This is why God allows the birds and the bees to just start doing this thing. The hormones and the pheromones and the, this is right. This is, this is called the law of attraction. It should happen. That's desire. But what should it terminate in? Love, which is a resting place for those two. They are to build a nest together. Create other love birds who later on are driven by desire until they attach 
and then they rest. And then they replicate it again. But what happened with Eve? She left love in pursuit of desire. It was one by which she desired to have wisdom. She desired it to know good and evil. She didn't need it. She had God. When you got God, you don't need anything. See what I'm getting at? And today, that same metaphorical tree of the knowledge of good and evil is still drawing women by the serpent to want to be like God. All right. This is, this is where we are, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. This is where we are. Who has the mic? Um, I'll start right here with Olivia. I mean, uh, Victoria. <laughs> okay. Um, so, See, I was, so now I got two daughters. One's Olivia. The other one's Victoria. And I go, which one? Is it Olivia? <laughs> is it Victoria? Go ahead on. Okay. So I was just wondering if my question is, if you're going to be going in like tomorrow, I'm really excited for um, the rules of engagement. And you had talked about kind of the dynamic um, nowadays with um, men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like as a single woman, um, how that would play into like kind of dating and like approaching that. Um, and I was wondering if you would kind of go into that because I know it's like a marriage series and so it's more focused on like the marriage aspect. Nope, it's but not. For th- <laughs> I, I talked about that. I told you that this is pre-marriage all the way into marriage and post-marriage. Most people caught that. So what I had last Saturday, and I, want, I do need, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind at all whether it was a single young person, male or female, to walk the plank too. In explaining, I use the metaphor walk the plank, but just understand it. Uh, being able to explain the um, experience of pursuing a relationship and what you learned from it. Because you guys can teach each other about the pitfalls, right? As you are exploring relationships. But your question in particular would be around what? Uh, whether, I don't want to put words in your mouth. My question would be around um, how to, because I've had a few conversations with um, some guy friends of mine, mm-hmm. and um, they have told me about like that kind of fear that they have in they like do. approaching a woman nowadays. Yeah. Um, just because there's so much like stigma around like that natural attraction, right? And maybe you don't have that like relationship of like friendship with that person to be able to be like, hey, like I'm interested in you versus like a random person that you see and you're like, hey, like I'm interested in you and being able to approach someone. And so in that like kind of context and um, the way that kind of society is nowadays, how like women should go about um, being able to rest in their femininity um, because I feel like a lot of women desire to, you know, be pursued in that way, but men are scared too. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of them. Exactly. A couple of things are going on there that um, I'll speak into tomorrow, but I've been, you know, I've been giving these kind of excerpts in the bulletin for the last couple, two or three weeks, right? Yeah. If you don't read them, then you don't know them, but I'm, I'm talking about that in the bulletins. I haven't done it the last two weeks, but for about three weeks in a row, I talked about how to go at the idea of um, preparing yourself for marriage as a male and a female and how to know whether or not you're prepared and then how to have conversations around that once you understand what it means to be in pursuit of of marriage right as an institution so some of the things i said i'll say now to help any of you guys the unpreparedness that's going on with males and females today is around their not knowing their identity clearly and not knowing their roles clearly 
So imagine a man not being able to clearly affirm what it means to be a biblical man. So he can't have a conversation with a young lady if his understanding of manhood is askew from biblical principles that sets up a hierarchy of what constitutes a biblical man. And therefore, he is not going to be confident to talk about what constitutes male identity, male attribution, and masculinity in relationship to it. In addition, if he is, if he's had an experience with women where women have not known how to negotiate conversation, conversation, that's, that's you know, common language dynamic, in a way in which it is collaborative. If, if women are combative because the brother doesn't know how to articulate, if she doesn't see that as an opportunity to support his attempt at being able to express what he's trying to say, then it's going to come off on his part as weakness and towards her is going to sound like she is being aggressive. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a subtle underhanded reality behind that because there's so much approval and force being poured upon women that women feel free to be assertive and aggressive with men. Okay, and a lot of times they're doing that out of a kind of protection of their own selves. But and this is where uh, the whole issue of femininity and masculinity comes into play. This is what we're going to unpack tomorrow. So let's imagine a man, a young man doesn't know what it means to be masculine. And let's imagine that a female doesn't know what it means to be feminine. And so while both of them are having conversations about subject matters that are mundane or even important. The signal that is getting mixed up is at the masculine-feminine level because masculine and feminine are not only like socially constructed expectations, but they are also emotional expressions. So when you express yourself as a female and you are misperceived as aggressive or combative or contentious or argumentative, those are toxic masculine traits. Those are not feminine traits. And so now you are at the emotional level exercising a kind of combative dialogue with that man. So like a good man is not going to be in combat, combat in a combat mode with a woman. As soon as he picks up on combativeness, he's retreating. Did that come home? As soon as he picks up on combativeness, he's retreating. Now, I'm not saying competence. I'm not even saying confidence. I'm going to explain that tomorrow. There's a big difference between confidence and combativeness. And often combativeness is a fig leaf cover for insecurity. Oh, I could go on because if the brother feels like he needs to stand his ground just because 
He wants to help this sister understand that what we're dealing with is a sub-narrative language dynamic at the emotional level. He can find her weakness propositionally and expose it. Did that make some sense? And say you're wrong at the propositional level. You're wrong at the level in which you are asserting what you're asserting. And if she if she discovers that she is wrong, she's going to retreat even further into her masculine emotional resistance stance. And start employing other tactics not to give in. Immediately, we have destroyed what we call the common language premise of collaborating and cooperating in order to cultivate. So it's at the communication level that men and women have to become better at knowing their own identity and knowing what masculinity is and femininity, because these are characteristics that have overlapping qualities. But they are different proportionally for men than they are for women because of our different callings. Did that make some sense? So a man is going to have certain proportional layout of attributes that constitutes his masculinity. And they're going to show up differently at the execution level than they would show up for a female. It doesn't mean that female aren't to be strong, aren't to be clear, aren't to be bold when they need to. It's just that those don't have to be dominant traits that make up their obvious character as they are expressing themselves. See what I'm getting at? In fact, I can tell you the opposite biblically is true. Biblically, the opposite is true. That a woman is to be strong at her core and therefore confident in her sense of who she is, but she is to also be meek and quiet in her phenotypical expression because she needs to be available for correspondence with the male. Mm -hmm. Did that make some sense? So no man is going to embrace another man. Yes. Because that's how you get homosexuality. When a man is fighting with another man as a kind of pathological pastime, that's homosexuality. Did that make some sense? If a man is arguing with another female as if she's a male, he's weak. And a lot of brothers get drawn into that in their own homes with their wives and start arguing with their wives like they're a woman too. Then they emote and they cry and whine and act a fool. And all that woman is training him to do is be a homosexual. Because, see, now we are loving the same sex. Because we're, we're, we're modeling masculinity. Two women, catty, fighty. Does that make sense? But they're really men. All right, uh, Corinne, who, who, do, do you have a mic? Okay, I'll do not. All right, I'll go here and then go back there. Okay, so women, right? You got to keep so the mic you you touched on this like last week, and, and I was just thinking about. It. I have a two part question. So thirty three, you you started with the other day. I think maybe it was Tuesday. But for God is not an author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of the saints. Yes. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under the obedience. As um, 
also of the saith husband. the law. That's right. And so then um, and if it's, they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at, at home. home. Right. And so that's that power that the women you said need to take back. That the women need to take back at home because they're not supposed to, to, to do it in the you go home and then you, you have articulate conversation and you lift your your man up. Right. And he can then he doesn't you go, don't. OK, so that was there. But then it goes on to the tongues. And um, in that thing, it says, so um, if any man... You're the slipping pro- into another category that doesn't need to be developed. Yet. No, but this, this was today. But I'm curious about this tongues thing. Yeah, we're not there yet. You've okay. got about seven weeks to go. Okay, good. I'm so great. Because the I'm gifts. so... Didn't I already say we're headed to the gifts? Over I'm just over. so curious about that, right. you know, because I don't know anything about that. Well, and so good. I, I, slipped. I, can, I, can, I can say something about it as an application to where we are if you're paying attention. So I'll get you in a second. Marlis. Okay. So the the um, the stumbling block of tongues in first Corinthians 14 is around using speech that makes no sense. And it becomes a stumbling for people that are demanding sense making. Did you guys hear that? Mm-hmm. The stumbling in First Corinthians 14 is about running off at your mouth and making no sense. Uh, glossolalia is equivalent today to postmodern fantasy unreal speak. Glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues without interpretation, which is forbidden. Paul made it clear. If you don't have an interpreter, you don't go into glossolalia. No one is edified by you running off at the mouth and no one can understand what you're saying. If you force us to listen to you rattle off at the mouth in language or in dialect or in genres of speech that we don't understand, we are complicit in you hoodwinking us. Did that make some sense? And we are doing the opposite of order. We're engaging in chaos and we are adopting unreal. This is what we're dealing with today. Everything you're watching is unreal. And they're telling you it's real and they're condemning the real that we know constitutes reality. And people that are falling prey for it are people who are not grounded in real enough to demonstrate that what they're doing is unreal. See what I'm getting at, ladies and gentlemen? You must know that every time you hear somebody say something wrong and then they say, no, this is right, they're unreeling you. They're BSing you. And they want to they want to uproot you from rational, coherent, logical, objective, propositional, scientifically verified, intuitively knowing truth. So intuition is a gift that God gives you so that you don't buy BS. Did that make some sense? Right. So one of the things that a hoodwinker loves to do is get you to dismantle your intuition. And that's what churches have been doing for decades in our Pentecostal churches, where people go into that frenzy foolishness that they're engaging in and they tell you that's the Holy Ghost. And they have you have no way of verifying the chaos. And then when somebody shows you, no, I can take you to Africa, I can take you to India, I can take you to the Fiji Islands and I can show you they're doing the same thing in these pagan religions that they're doing in the church. Now you have evidence that it cannot be of God. 
because that manifestation is not exclusive to the Christian church. It's exactly the same in Hindu, Kundalini, Fiji, the Virgin Isles, in Africa. All of that stuff is having the same manifestations. Does that come home? Right. And so here you are in this kind of barrage of Babel. And the only thing you can do is go, I can't verify whether or not God is in this. But because all these people are doing it, I'm just going to submit to it. Well, that's what's been going on for the last three years. All right, Ms. Marlis. Marlis first. Okay. Um, I just, I've heard you guys, I've heard you talk about men being afraid of women. Um, I would also just like to say from a personal point of view, I think that women are also afraid of men. And... Um, I know this this evening is bringing up a lot of stuff for me that I had kind of forgotten um, that was important. You talked about the combative women. By the time I was 19 years old, I had been... Um, I, I felt that I had been treated by men out on the street um, as if I were like a whore. And I was very angry. And when a man would, you know, do the um, routine like, hey, mama, you know, blah, 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 I became, at times, I perhaps combative, I would say, you know, don't call me mother, don't call me sweetheart, don't call me this. And um, I didn't think that I was being bad. I just thought I was protecting myself. I think that that is a big issue. I know particularly in the black community, I didn't get that kind of behavior from most white men. So, so hold on, because you, you, you know you, you, you have a tendency, Marlis, to try to work out what you're going to say audibly for about 10 minutes. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll wind it. You have to. I'll wind up. Because my, 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 I guess my question is, do women... Well, are you going to at some are you going to address tomorrow or later down the road um, on a psychologically emotional level why women are combative against men because it I I appreciate what I've been learning about men godly men but I think the women's movement was a it was a mistaken attempt to fix a problem. Well, we already talked about that. And we've okay. talked about that many times. Okay. So, so my, 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 my thing is, how does, I guess my question is, what does a woman who wants to be godly, how does she handle when a man approaches her in a way that is demeaning 
And should she even, you know, consider, you know, say, well, maybe he's not so bad. You know, so maybe- now you're projecting. All right. So let me help you. Projecting I, what? You're, you're, you're actually going through again these models of anecdotes and stories. And it's way too long for people to hear. I'm helping you. Because I can infer from you, but like people are going, all right, Marlis, you got to get to it. And so you'll start to get to it, and then you'll start fleshing it out more. Help her. Tell her, tell her what I'm saying is true. And so you've got to catch yourself when you do that. So I got you. Okay, because a lot of people, there are people who do that. They're starting to actually close out the idea that they are stating and they don't feel confident that they've said it enough. And so they start fleshing it out more and more. And then what happens is they don't know where to stop. So I'm helping you. I'm going to help you. So that's enough on that one. Thank you. And I want you to work at being better at that because I know you can. Because uh, people want to hear you, but they can't endure going down different rabbit trails trying to explain essentially what you said very clearly early on. And that's this. So how does a woman who is trying to actually be godly deal with men for whom she perceives they may be coming at her the wrong way? Just that simple. All right. Let me so let me just kind of talk about that. Just a tad. Of course, of course, you're going to have that. Of course, you're going to have that. Um, and, And the goal is for a woman to actually be clear on her identity and clear on her femininity. Right, because when you are clear on your femininity, you know when and how to be strong. You know when and how to put boundaries, how to check when a person is, a male is intruding at the emotional and psychological level beyond his right. Okay, sound women know how to do that. Now, what Marlis is talking about is, is wounds that women may have growing up in a culture that is a little bit more chaotic and they don't quite know how to actually even read a brother because there's a way to read some brothers who are speaking flimsily and using bad vernacular and terminology, but their motive is right. And that requires being able to read the motive because you live comfortably in the culture where our men, as well as our women, but largely our men, are being dumbed down on so many levels that they don't even know how to articulate a conversation into stage one, stage two, or stage three of a comfortable um, query into conversation that could lead to something. Okay, so we, we know that we're dealing with brokenness on both person's part. Am I making some sense? Right. So there will be a a shy trigger on the part of men and women to engage in just the common talk, what we call communication, because we're not sure that we're going to be setting off or detonating some kind of hidden explosive under the ground of dialogue and conversation, because so much of that is seen in your social media context where it makes both persons gunshot. So what I said in my articles that I've written for us for several weeks is you got to prioritize knowing yourself. You got to prioritize who you are as a woman individually and then generically as a community of women. You got to also get a grip on your femininity at the level of your emotional makeup so that you can actually say what you want to say without what you're saying getting Uh, confused with how you're feeling. 
Like you can be feeling a certain way and it can cancel out what you're saying. Am I making some sense? And so like if you are struggling with insecurity and uh, and you're feeling like the male party is getting too close to you in some kind of way, it will discombobulate your sense of coherent speech. And that will simply create more internal conflict where you're not quite saying what you want to say because you're struggling with what's in front of you in terms of what we call the, the inappropriate space psychologically and proximally. And now you're trying to be kind, but in reality, you kind of want to shut it down because you're discombobulated. And that same thing can be happening with men, too. And this is where we have to kind of learn how to handle our masculinity and our femininity at the um, at the structural level of the qualities of both male and female. And then at the emotional level of our own personal. I'm going to be talking about emotional balance tomorrow. Okay, it's called emotional balance. Right. Because if we are balanced emotionally, then we can do a better job of communicating accurately what we are thinking. Does that make some sense? If we are unbalanced emotionally, we may not be able to trust that what we said came out exactly the way we wanted it because there was too much emotional investment at a wrong level, thrusting it out. So it came out the wrong way. I know what I'm saying is true because I've been married for a long time. Um, and we got to get a bet. We got to do a better job on knowing our identity and understanding our femininity. I'll tell you the most attractive thing in the world for men, good men, is a woman who has a really good emotional balance and clarity on the spectrum of her femininity because she helps him settle down. Did that make some sense? I'm going to say it again. A female that is emotionally balanced and clear on her feminine traits and all of the apparatus that comes with being a female. She's going to still be confident. She's going to still be assertive. She's going to still be objective. She's going to still be cautious. She's going to still be caring and nurturing. So many things that go into being a female that when a brother picks up on all all of it at the rhetorical level, at the um, at the body expression level, at the emotional level, he can settle down because she's being clear to him. Okay? It's very important. Like, if you're confused, like, if you're confused, a good brother's just going to back up until you straighten out the confusion because, you know, he don't know where that's going to take him. And and we got to do a better job. Does that make some sense? As ladies in that regard. And then again, brothers got some issues too. So um, who has the mic? Okay, I'm going to start here. Then I'll go over to Richard. Richard, you got a question or observation? Let me get the ladies out first. Go ahead on. Um, first, God is so great. He is. I was a devouring mother. And <laughs> praise the Lord. My son I'm going to have to unpack that a little bit more too. <laughs> but I didn't have to unpack it for you because you lived it out. I live you it. You know what the devouring mother is. Yeah, and I'm, praise the Lord. My son's not gay. Uh, exactly. So far. Exactly. So. <laughs> With you God's are so mercy. funny. Anyway. Um, I was just with him a couple of weeks ago. I guarantee you he's not gay. Yeah, he's not gay. Okay. Um, the, the, the thing with uh, the devouring mother and 
why I totally get why the woman has to take it back is because we have been so predictably programmed and propaganda about, you know, being a man. Like, it was, I, I, it was a joke. My son would come home and introduce me, this is the man of the house. Yep. And I would love it. Yep. And now I, we're just talking. see how we were engaging in Unreal even then? No, it was, it's, it's psychotic. And yep. I was, you know, even my dress, yep. I like, you know, business suits, you know, with a sexy flair to it. But it was still, you know, like being unbiblical. Yep. And now that I'm living a biblical life, my life is less confusing. It's, it's not a, a bowl of cherries. Uh, and it's, uh, there's, well, it's a bowl of cherries with quite a few pits. Yep. Um, and, but it just makes sense to live this way. And so I, I just want to put that out there that I love God so much. And it just, when I hear this stuff, it just really makes sense. And uh, I just want to cry for joy Amen. instead of crying for the past of who I was, that no, old person. No, and you're entering into rest. So I just want you to catch those categories. So the enemy will excite you with desire. Desire is not rest. Desire is play. It's cool, but it's not rest. See, and when you're constantly driven by desire, you're going to be constantly on the move for more. It never settles. And so can you imagine this? I shouldn't go on, but, you know, you guys are, uh, I can tell you're listening. Please understand when you're addicted to desire, you will continue to tear down in order to build up because you're not interested in rest. None. Did you get that? Right. It's important to know that it's important to know women that are driven by desire cannot appreciate rest. Now, let me help you. A good man, he lives to create a domain of rest. That's what he creates. That's his job. That's our job. He doesn't mind, you know, a little hand gliding here there. He doesn't mind a little zip lining here and there, right? He's probably not going to jump out of a plane with a parachute across the Himalayan mountains. Because those kind of desires don't emerge in a man of rest. So if you, if you seek to exceed the parameters of a, a godly male whose whole purpose for existence is a rest domain... You're going to be by yourself. He's not going to follow you because he understands that you're given to unrest in the name of desire. See what I'm getting at, ladies and gentlemen? It's very important to understand these qualities. And I'm looking forward to us drop, drilling down into them more fully tomorrow. Let me see who has the mic. I, I'll get to I'll the men I, I want to ask about the gay thing. Okay. Okay, so. You got to be quick. The, I, the man, the man. How is he attracted to another man? Okay, I'll, I'll show you in a minute. I'll give you that formula again. Who has the mic? Can I see, can I who has the mic over here? Who has the mic? You're pointing, but I don't see the mic. <laughs> oh, only Richard. Okay. Oh, the, oh, we're after males now. Okay, go ahead on, Richard. Uh, I wanted to ask about, in light of the um, hierarchy there, you have God, Christ, and the man, and the woman. Um, I'm not sure if you answered this, so 
if the woman sees that the man is, uh, say, not appropriately masculine, is it appropriate or not for her to um, point that out or speak to him on those things that he might need to do? Uh, The answer can be yes, as long as she both have, she has a set of appropriate authorities to affirm her in the event that that male takes what she says in the wrong way. And um, if she cannot get a male proxy to correct that person. Right. So like a, a, a good woman would try to honor a foolish man by talking to a wise man to talk to the foolish man about how to be, behave more wisely. Did that make some sense? Right. Can, can a couple of you brothers get a hold of him and, and straighten him out? Did that make some sense? Right. Because otherwise you may be engaging in the territory where you have to uh, introduce your masculine qualities to deal with him. And you shouldn't have to do that when we are a community of males and females with enough personnel to be able to facilitate that. Like in my house, I'm the dude. Whenever when brothers and sisters coming through my house, got to deal with me. Does that make some sense? Like. Because I got two, way too many daughters, way too many daughters. The brothers that's running up in there, come on, sit in the living room with, 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 with dad. I'm dad. Come on, sit in. All right, how we, how we doing? What's your name? What you up to? How can I help you? How can I help you? Okay. All right, I might get a little crazy looking too. How can I help you? Right, so, so. All that's about is establishing a higher consciousness of accountability. Please understand, and this is what community is about. This is why Esther Perel was right. You don't want to reduce marriage down to just him and her. It has to be community. Because in the him and her scenario, the woman can go rogue or the man can go rogue. And then all of a sudden, you're in this rogue war all by yourselves in this cave. This is supposed to be a community. Marriage is a social mandate event. It's collective. All right, let me see here. Did that help, Richard? Okay, good. So if we, if we got somebody we need to beat down, let me know. I'm with you. We go way back. You know that. We can fix that. My soldier. Help him. Help okay. Him. okay. Heavenly Father, just don't let me say nothing crazy and out of line. Edify the church. I got to say something to you, Pastor Jesse, and to the rest of the members in this church. I have learned so much from coming here. Amen. I have learned a lot. And what the young lady was speaking about, about the speaking in tongue, I ain't going to say get on that because I'm coming back and I got to learn some more. But he touched on that. And I was in the Pentecostal church. Me too. (laughs) And... We talked about everybody speaking in tongue and all that and all these other people. But last week, Pastor Jesse made it perfectly clear. It was 17 nations. Yep. I didn't know that. I just thought it was a lot of people there, you know, like we are here. They were speaking a little Spanish, a little this, a little that. 
Now these were nations. So now I understand that these people were saying, he was speaking in my tongue. Yes. He's speaking in my language. Yes. So the people heard what they was hearing. Yep. It just wasn't the stuff, because you made a joke about the other people saying stuff like they do on TV. Yes. Blah, 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 they say, say words and stuff like that. And I was like, I don't know if that's true or not, but you made it perfectly clear. Yeah. And I'm coming back to get the rest of that. <laughs> okay? I'm coming to get the rest of that. But just one time, a little humor in here. I came down here a couple of weeks ago, and they had some Parmesan chicken and some uh, lasagna, and I missed out on it. I just want to know, was it good? Somebody please tell me. I missed out on it because I, I asked Pastor Jesse that my wife and I wasn't on the same spiritual level. And I thought, you know, I just wanted her to, you know. That I'm, brother I'm, wanted to know, was it good? And do you see how he got right back on the road to his question? Because I, I know it was good. I know it was good. Yeah, but we be getting down that grace. I'm sorry but, uh, we be getting down. I, um, I, asked my, I asked Pastor Jesse about, you know, if I'm not, me and my wife wasn't spiritually on the same level. And I told about my son was concerned about her coming in 20, 24 hours. My son called her and said, Mama, would you come out here and stay with me? I asked that question on April the 7th. My wife was gone the very next week on a Thursday morning, took her to the Oakland airport, and she ain't been back since. Okay? And I'm going to, do I need to sow a seed or whatever I need to do? But I want her to come on back home because I love coming to church and getting y'all food and stuff. But I need that woman back home cook me some grits or something, a little egg or something like I need. But uh, I just want to say I am glad to come to this church. I done came. I come every time they open the doors, and I learn something each and every time. And I just want to give thanks to God for showing me how to get here. And thank you, Pastor Jesse, for being such a great leader. Thank you. I thank God for making us healthy, food-loving people here at Grace, too. Um, we got you, bro. We'll pray for, for the message to come back. This is also the blessing of what I wrote in one of the articles about uh, pacing and spacing. So you have to pace relationships. You can't crowd relationships. Because we need a, a healthy feedback loop in relationship. So it has to be paced. Because we're only human and we need God inserting into us frequently enough for us to recover our equilibrium with our spouse. And then there's times when we need space between us and them so we can actually do a longer period of self-assessment. So when we come back together, we can do a better job. Our brother misses his wife now, doesn't he? See, I guarantee you for about two days, he's going to be the nicest husband on the planet. That's called calibration time. You calibrate. So I totally get it. All right, let's keep going because I want to knock it down in a few minutes. Sister Caroline, we got you, right? Hold on, hold on. Caroline, hold on. My sister has the mic before you. This Caroline. So just a clarification, and I'm really grateful for covering the rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. Because the word desire comes in the Bible, and really, when it comes to women, there's desire. And the Bible says the desire of Eve was unto the man. So there's a desire there. So the question is, 
do I really desire him or do I love him? So, so, and I hope he'll cover that tomorrow. But for, for today... Uh-uh, you don't want to guarantee that because so many different things can happen tomorrow that I don't actually deal okay. with Genesis chapter. Do you want to talk about it right now? It's really simple. Mm-hmm. That's an exegetical text. That was a mandate from God. Her desire shall be unto her man. Right, because he knew she was already compelled by desire because she committed rebellion against both God and her husband with the serpent. So now she's driven by desire. She wasn't settled with love because she had everything. So now that she's excited by desire, God is saying, channel that desire into your husband. And that's what every godly woman will understand is that as much as she may have many different avenues of responsibility to exercise her gifts, because women are powerful in so many ways. We know that. If she's married and she doesn't predominantly drive her desires towards her husband, she's actually not being a godly woman. Because you have desires. Yes. If those desires are not harmonizing into a support system for her husband, those desires are going somewhere else. And when they go somewhere else long enough, those desires actually serve to polarize the relationship and ultimately it becomes oppositional. Did that make some sense? Yes. Right. This is where we are today in our present culture. And that would not be biblical femininity because the scriptures are clear in Titus. Read Titus 1, Titus 2, verses 1 through 4. The woman is to love her husband. Yes. And so she should be thinking about how her desires facilitate a supporting of him, even if her desires are driving outcomes that are other oriented, like she might be running a business. She might be engaged in this or that. You can do many things. Mm -hmm. Does it facilitate you becoming a better woman for your husband? That really has to be the key. And, And if it's not, then it's working against your husband. So what you would be doing under desire is you would be storing up an arsenal of warfare against your spouse. So desire will bring a conflict in the relationship. If you don't but direct love it, that's will, right. will will construct the relationship. One hundred percent. And and the, and the text will all, it will construct the relationship. And the text <laughs> is also saying that um that God knew that in the same way that sin had a desire to rule over Cain, she had a desire to rule over her husband. And so what God was saying is submit to your husband and let those desires be a facilitator to his, his position. That's what God is calling. And godly women know that battle. We know you guys know that battle. And uh, it takes the grace of God and humility to take your powers and use them to support and not tear down. I'm sure someone asked that question. So where's the Holy Spirit there between man and Christ? And I think you pointed it to Christ. But then when when we were growing up, we say one of the qualities of the man that I want should be spirit-filled. And actually with Proverbs 20, 27, the spirit of man is the kind of the Lord. And he uses that spirit to search the inner parts of the, of, of the man. All right, so let me help you with that one. So is the spirit in the man or in the Christ? So oh, I, I want right. that. In that text you're quoting, this is where we ought to be careful with the text. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. 
It's talking about your spirit. The spirit of man. Right. So which spirit is which that? Is, and, and the man is generic. That meaning we all are spirits. We all have a spiritual consciousness, spiritual awareness, and our inner man is discerning who we are because this is how you self-index, okay? Now, of course, when you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit helping you. So this is what is meant by comparing spiritual things with spiritual people. So the Holy Ghost is going to bring the word to you in your inner man, your spiritual man, to evaluate your conduct, your actions, your motive, etc., right? It becomes a way to see what's in our heart. You and I can't see our own heart unless the spirit of God opens that heart up. But it's a communication between our spirits that's going on in the inner man for all of us as men and women. I just want you to know that. But whenever you use the word, where's the Holy Spirit in relationship to Christ, you know that you haven't been taught well. And I'm going to help you with that. Yeah, I need need to know when I'm in that spiritual realm. Am I with my man or am I with Christ? So what when i'm fellowshipping in the spiritual realm because it's spiritual it's coming from the throne of god so who who am i fellowshipping with with christ or? you're fellowshipping with god okay. you're fellowshipping with god through christ you're fellowshipping with god through christ in relationship to the person that's next in proximity to you if you're a married person with your husband. Okay. So when we use the hierarchy in 1 Corinthians 11, mm-hmm. that's setting up what is called the family structure. It's not talking about how we engage the whole world. Okay, that's a family structure. So you notice it's one man, one woman, one Christ, one God. What comes out of that is family. Humanity comes out of that. Yes. That's what that hierarchy is for. Yes. But now when you're dealing with other people in general, you're dealing with other people who are sometimes saved and sometimes not. You're dealing with other men. They're not your man. They're not your head. You're engaging them equally as a human being. Mm-hmm. Your man is your husband. Yes. Now, when we talk about Christ, inherent in Christ is the spirit. The word Christ is creo from which we get the term anointing. It is equivalent to the Old Testament Messiah or Messiah. Messiah is the anointed one. So when we have Christ, we have the spirit of God. Did that help you? Because yes. it's really important. Again, in our Pentecostal churches, we blow up the term spirit of God, spirit of God, spirit of God so much and not know that you can't have the spirit without having the son. When a man or woman truly has Christ in them, you have the anointing. You have the anointing. And and that anointing takes on the shape of the son who is a pattern of the father for us. We don't want an amorphous spiritual kind of experience with a kind of uh, ethereal God that can't be comprehended at the anthropomorphic level. The whole purpose of Jesus coming is to show us the father. And so when we have the anointing, we're not talking about being just possessed by some kind of weird, crazy, ethereal spirit, because this is how we attribute to the Holy Ghost all kinds of bizarre and twisted and unbiblical reactions and actions and notions and experiences. All of that is undefined. I will say it like this. You cannot have the spirit without having the son. And you cannot have the son without having the spirit because the Holy Ghost dwelt on Jesus and remained. When the heavens opened up, the father spoke. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Ghost descended like a dove and dwelt on him and remained on him. So Jesus is the one that imparts 
to us his spirit so that we can have fellowship with Jesus. This is why we're called Christian and not Numitans. Numitans would be spiritist. Christians meaning we identify with the father through the son by the spirit. The The goal of the spirit is to make us more like Jesus. Did that make some sense? Yes. To make us more like Jesus, which means you never saw Jesus running around, wallowing, kicking his shoes off, (laughs) acting unseemly, doing a lot of these crazy things. You see folks who say they're possessed by the Holy Spirit do. The Holy Spirit never behaves unseemly because Jesus never behaved unseemly and the father never behaved unseemly. Am I making some sense? Yes. Right. So we got a false spirit out there that really is much more similar to pagan religions than it is to Christianity. Uh, uh, Yes, you did. Thank you, Pastor. And finally, first Corinthians 11, three, and then you go down. So the woman should have power over her head because of the angels. That that means she should have a man on top on top of her in order for her not to be outside of the hierarchy because of the fallen angels because of both the fallen and the obvious angels even the holy angels are watching us yes because we are an extension of god at the incarnational level through jesus so in the same way jesus obeyed the father we're called to obey the father yes so we're called the family of God. So the angels are sitting back and saying, okay, which one of these is the rebellious children that we got to kill? Right? Because <laughs> that's what the holy angels hanging out for, for devils. Yeah, could be. They're hanging out for devils. For the, for the, for they're the there to protect one. us if we're children of God, but they're killing everything that wants to go contrary to God's will. Here, I'm, listen, I'm helping you. The devils have swords. And they, they, they go after everything that rebels against God. This is why Paul made the statement that we're unpacking. Whosoever uh, destroyeth the temple of the Lord, him God will destroy. So this matter of, you know, walking in the spirit and, and being like Christ is really important. I'm going to do one more question and then shut it down because it's getting awesome. t- cold. Time to go home. Caroline. I'm not that put that deep. mic close to you. Oh, okay. I'm not that deep, That's but that, that was real good. Uh-huh. Short, sweet, straight to the point. I want to know whatever happened to and what's wrong with when it comes to the approach of man and woman. Help her hey, with the mic because the mic must be too heavy. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. I want to know whatever happened to the approach when That's it comes it. to men and women. Hey, I like you. Can we talk? Is there anything wrong with that? No, not at all. Right. No, no, not at all. I wish we lived in a culture where we could be simple and candid like that. But there's the, the requisite conditions of where we live makes that statement not simple. Does that make some sense? It should be simple. I get the question all the time. I'm going to close us in prayer here. Thank you for your patience. We have confused our world. We have confused our world and we have confused kids. And we are, we are confused at the emotional level and therefore at the sociological level. Uh, the party spirit has made it hard for men and women to just be in the same space and just have normal conversations together. So young people are always asking me, you know, how should I, 
a young brother, how should I speak to the female? Well, just be respectful and simple and clear. Right, how should I speak to that brother? Be respectful, simple and clear. Uh, yeah, and, and if you're honest and you're interested in a brother, you know, frame it uh, as a... Um, as an inquiry, we'll call this an interrogative. Um, is it possible that we could have a conversation sometime? A cup of coffee. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. She ain't asking nothing but a conversation. And the same thing for the male. We're, we're, we're all way overcomplicating it. We're way, way overcomplicating it. And, and it's overcomplicated because we have hyper-individuated all the human beings into their own little silos so that we don't have a healthy accountability base. So everybody feels like they're doing it on their own. That's what Esther was saying. So when the sister goes and talk to that brother, she doesn't feel like she has a healthy accountability base just in case the signals get mixed up or the brother coming up to the sister. Biology is working. I, t- I told you this is called the biosocial imperative. Somebody's coming after you. You're looking for somebody because we're trying to continue life on this planet. See what I'm saying? It ain't got. To, it doesn't have to be evil, malevolently, malevolently um, predisposed. We just have to be be careful. But when we're in community, we can we can be a little bit freer. Is using safeguards when we do it. You guys know that. And women, you, you're, you're gifted women to be sharper than men at the, um, at the level of intuition by nature. By nature, you're, you're gifted to be sharper than men because you, you're called to, as we're going to learn tomorrow, protect the most valuable commodities of the domain. Literally, feminine, uh, to be feminine is to give suck. That is the etymological root of the word feminine, to give suck. Give suck. To nurture from the breast. Did that come home? That's why your master said in Matthew 24, woe unto you that give suck and are with children in difficult days. Because your care for your children it's going to be so heavy in the midst of trials and tribulations that it's going to bear on you psychologically. See what I'm getting at? So I'm already showing you a distinction between masculinity and femininity at the deep physiological level. Because men don't conceive, bear, and have babies. We're not going to buy into the unreal. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for our class. Thank you for those watching. Thank you for us being able to talk about these real matters uh, and continue to grow us up so that we can be wise in the salvation through a knowledge of Christ and grow us broadly so we can be the kind of men and women that you want us to be and, uh, and to find those relationships that are needed for us to continue to Uh, manifest and exhibit the hierarchy of God, Christ, man and woman. And and, and as much as the father is equal to the son in essence and nature, so the man and the woman are equal to each other in essence and nature. 
though we are subordinate to your will. Help us to remember that always as we go our way, give us traveling mercies, a great sleep in preparation to uh, gather together at one tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.